Welcome back to Sharkcast, the podcast brought to you by Baskin Shark Scotland. Um, it's Rachel and Shane here, and we are so delighted that we have another episode to share with you with Colin Speedy. Um, so our last episode, we were already talking to Colin about all the survey work he's done with Baskin Sharks over the past few decades. But he has so much amazing experience with these animals that we just had to have him on for another episode. <laughs> so if you've not listened already, please go back and tune into that one. Uh, but for those of you who missed it, um, Shane, can you just catch us up on who Colin is and what he does? Yeah, well, he's a bit of a, a legend in the shark uh, or bass and shark uh, research field. He done a lot of the original survey work um, uh, through the 90s. Uh, and I think in the 80s he was doing sort of uh, uh, the beginnings of ecotourism uh, but a lot of his survey work paved the way for the modern uh, shark surveys and a lot of his work went into what we now have is you know the fully protected bassin sharks including uh, a marine protected area on the west coast um, he also um, created WISE which is a, a scheme uh, for uh, marine tour operators and people that access the water, whether that's boaties or kayakers, uh, that may not have the knowledge to interact around marine wildlife in a in a respectful way. Uh, it's like a training nationwide training scheme. So um, he's done all that as well. Uh, he obviously also wrote the Sea Monsters Tale, the the book on Baskin sharks, um, and he has a whole section in it on Baskin shark hunting, which covers all the different hunters over the eras, uh, and it's a really great resource um, on that. So we kind of wanted to maybe split this one into uh, to have this one specifically on the hunting uh, and split up the survey work as well so yeah absolutely he's had a very accomplished career with Baskin Sharks um, so we left our last episode talking about an idyllic evening on a summer day <laughs> which is quite contrasting to the hailstone that you might be able to hear hammering down on our window right now seems <laughs> but... like it's a, a regular thing this we should just do a hailstone and rain uh, episode on the West Coast. Some special effects sounds. Uh, so we're going to transport you back there and we hope you enjoy it. You were saying and and uh, that you were feeling at that time when, when you saw so many sharks was was one of elation. Uh, and that's probably because of your knowledge of the hunting. Uh, and, you know, to see that many sharks uh, was such a great thing because so many had been taken out uh, over the last century in this area, both by uh, local boats and uh, visiting um, fleets from Norway. And your book, which is uh, an amazing, amazing read, uh, Sea Monster's Tale, uh, has got a really great synopsis of the, the hunting right from uh, the very early days through to the post-war era and to the, to the, last, uh, the last man in the, in the 90s. Uh, and and kind of covers all the books that are no longer available. Um, so it would be great to kind of talk through your research into that um, because it's a kind of romanticised part uh, uh, from a kind of bygone era and the small isles and the Hebrides and things like that. Uh, but also takes us onto modern protection as well because the last hunter ended as the as the protection came in. So how did you? Uh, what interested you in the, in the in the hunting history to start with and, and researching it? I guess you you used the books to start with for your own surveys, but is that is that how it all started? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we we started looking at the books for the reason you suggest. 
in that we wanted to find out where where the old hunting zones had been. Um, but it was a fascinating tale, and and uh, it gradually it drew me in, and and I also. It was very interesting. You know, part of the reason that the hunting took off so fast was because it was so lucrative almost instantly. Um, and that was quite a, quite an unusual phenomenon. Um, so th there were many things that, that dragged me in. And I'm a bit of a history nut anyway, so it was a, an, an interesting thing. And I also think that we don't take enough notice of history. There's an awful lot we can learn biologically. I mean, we're seeing that with the way that we're looking at fish competitions now from distant eras you know, where the fish were much bigger and there were far more of them and so on and so forth. And you're watching, um, you know, this kind of tragedy of the commons occurring right across. So, you know, the basking shark was just a good and very, very, uh, if you like, charismatic element of that. So I thought this was this was fascinating. Um, and also, that you know, the watching the way that sharks were recorded in the years. So we we're going back to the 1700s. I mean, in Donegal in Northern Ireland, um, a guy called Nesbitt had a factory at Inver. Um, and, uh, you know, he was putting serious money into it because, you know, the, the value of the liver oil was so extraordinarily high. Um, you know, by the time we got to the 1760s, when Johann Gunnerus, the Archbishop of Trondheim, was the first guy to describe the shark, um, that was because, you know, all lots of his parishioners uh, in the coastal area were actually catching basking sharks. Mm. So the drawing of the basking shark was actually a drawing that was sent to him that was reinterpreted by another artist to make it look. And actually, it doesn't look bad. I've seen far worse ones from later on. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it, it spans so many interesting things. Um, you know, by classic thing, for example, in what we were looking at it from the point of view was in about the 1760 era, uh, there were bounties given out to um, sub subsidies, if you like, to a number of people to set up shark operations. And they were substantial ones. You know, they'd get hold of an ex-whaling ship with the mm -hmm. catcher boats and everything. These weren't, you know, dog and stick operations. Um, so Thomas McLeod on Canna got £30,000 in today's money, uh, which bought an awful lot uh, yeah. of kit 30,000 I think it might have been 300 um but equally Still a lot. <laughs> yeah yeah and there was another guy on Isla uh Campbell um a, a fellow called Stuart from Butte which was obviously in the Firth of Clyde so the yeah. Firth of Clyde was a place of interest because you know these guys only had old sailing boats and rowing boats they weren't maneuverable they you know they weren't going to go to windward at all um, so you had to put these operations close to where yeah. you knew they were going to be sharks. Simple as that. And that to us was the first indication that there were such hotspots. And these guys operated in the very areas that we'd just been talking about, um, as did the later hunters. Um, oil prices fluctuated. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, in the west of Ireland, for example, a liver could be worth, uh, you know, a pair of livers could be worth about £2,000 to a village that was a subsistence village. Yeah. Um, so valuable that it could make the difference between uh, poverty or, or uh, plenty over a winter for a small village. And this, this oil was a kind of, uh, you know, the, you know they're kind of the, they were used for like lighting and things like that. But what, what was your understanding of what the, the oil was used for in those kind of older times? Oil. 
in the very early days, it was used as a liniment. It was used for tanning leather. It was used, uh, um, the skin was used as a primitive form of sandpaper. Uh, and, you know, some of the flesh would have been consumed. So, you know, they had a value, but it was the, it was the livers. And, yeah. you know, fishermen are, are amazing people. They pass information to each other. They're tremendously bright people at their hunter-gathering effect. And, you know, what, what happened was word probably spread from Norway to the northeastern Scotland ports, which then found its way around, you know, because fishermen, again, travel. And then people started looking and saying, oh, have you got basking sharks here? Mm -hmm. That's certainly happened. And if you do, could you not try and catch some? So some of the earliest fisheries were actually drive fisheries, as go on to this day in Norway. Yeah. And in Moros. Uh, yeah, yeah. So guys would gather in in little fleet of boats and, you know, bang drums and all sorts of things and beat the sharks and drive them ashore and kill them when they when they got into the shallows. So mm. there were you know, it wasn't all harpoon fisheries either. There were strong reports of that from out in the Hebrides. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. So my understanding was there was there's there's very little written from the Hebrides from you know back in the day, which is obviously you know part of history and things, but my mind always kind of wonders, you know, before modern hunting, what it would have been like in the islands, you know, 100, 200 years ago, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, many other cultures around the world um, has recorded it in artwork and things like that. But there's, it, there seems to be like a bit of missing history there, because uh, surely they must have uh, came across them a lot, um, you know, yeah, sailing around and things, but uh, there's very little information on it, uh, whether it's just not been found yet, but. I, I picked up some information. I mean, some there are bare accounts of, you know, quantities landed and subsidies paid and things like the new statistic, statistical accounts. Um, and I picked up another reference to busking shot hunting from a very nice little book from, I think, South Uist, ah. um, which talks about, you know, and that's really looking at the artisanal side. Yeah. And when it went from being just something where you could you try to use everything but the squeak, if you like, it went because of the change in value of, of the oil relative to lighting. Mm. So it was used in, in lamps because it burns very cleanly, like a whale oil. Yeah. Um, and then started achieving par values with whale oil, which were very high. Um, so suddenly basking shots had a real price on their heads. But it was a risky business. You know, people lost their lives. But the better records occur in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And you weren't really counted as being much of a bloke in a in a village until you'd had a couple of years out on the sunfish bank. Yeah, May yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a rite of passage element to it as mm -hmm. well. And they were very brave men. There's no no question. I've been around that area and uh, it can cut up rough in an instant. So Yeah, that's right. Well, back, back in the days, you know, before the modern hunters, you know, it was just a bunch of burly blokes in a in a in a rowing boat with you know nets and, and spears and you know it was but man against beast type thing. If you look at um, Thomas Thomas Pennant's book, yeah, we were going has, to mention that. Yeah, yeah, the famous illustration of Loch Ranza. And what's really interesting is that you see the guys going around. I mean, it's a pretty fanciful depiction, but. You know, the most important thing in that picture to me is it's an industrial operation. This is not, you know, a couple of guys going out in a jolly. Mm. You know, there are maybe four or five catcher boats rowing around 
looking for sharks and you know and they've got a mother chip with them serious money well, is it? you it's wouldn't quite... sorry you know we used to say in in the west country you wouldn't bend down to pick up nothing so <laughs> You know, the, the fact that people were investing sums like that and the Scottish government were backing it, mm. such sums, was quite extraordinary. But it was a reflection of the fact that the rewards could be massive. That's right. Well, it's interesting because that, that sketch comes from the late 1700s, 70, 1774, <laughs> I think. Um, but the modern kind of hunting only started after the, the Second World War. So there was quite, there seems to be quite a big, a big gap. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder why... There is that kind of um, no one, no one took the hunting up seriously in between times because we started well, obviously industrial area and there was plenty of whaling going on at that time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there were probably a two or three things occurred. One is that um, there are fluctuations in these massive highs, if you like. Yeah, they don't last forever, and we, we're probably going through a, a downturn at the moment where. The, the, the major body of sharks have moved south because if you look at some of the work that was done, David Sims and others, Peter Cotton, um, with the connection with the North Atlantic Oscillation. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's stuff to be looked at. Now, there's also, there are also longer-term oscillations. One is called the AMO, the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, which is mm -hmm. not a true oscillation, probably not the best thing to hang your hat on. But uh, it's clear that, to some degree, the sharks disappeared from the Hebrides. It wasn't just the price dropped, which it did at times, uh, because it was, um, uh, I mean, certain things came on, like whale oil suddenly was available in much greater abundance, yeah. and then paraffin came in, and that did for the lighting side of things. Mm. So there were big changes, and that would have removed the impetus to hunt because the price wouldn't have been worth it. But you do get these upswings and downswings. If it follows it in the next, who knows what the, exactly will happen. We are at the moment on the horns of a dilemma because we don't know what's going to happen with climate change. Mm, that's right, yeah. We may well have a surprise effect. I think we're now into our third year of a, an El Nino event. Yeah, uh, that's certainly something we've we've noticed the last few years. There's definitely been changes and... <clears throat> uh, sharks and movements and times but also other things like uh you know portuguese man of war turning up and different yeah. different species yeah. that we don't normally see which is an oh, yeah. indicator that you know things are maybe not quite in the similar pattern to what it was before i mean the the overall uh picture back in in the days was that you know that there were still people they were still paying bounties so there was still a purpose to going out and hunting the sharks but they simply weren't bringing many in now, if you look at what uh, Philip Kunzlick uh, wrote, a fantastic little booklet for the Scottish fisheries, um, and that's got some really interesting data in it about, you know, from the Scottish fisheries protection vessels in the late 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. And about the distribution of sharks and how it shifted around. And, and he reports, you know, that some years it'd be a great abundance in the Firth of Clyde, nothing in the Minch, you know, and then another year, uh, it, they would say really strong presence in the northeast of Scotland. Um, there's a lot of really interesting records from there. This last this last summer, um, they saw lots and lots of sharks in the Murray Firth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, somebody gave me a book once that um, was written by a fight, an RAF fighter pilot from World War II, 
Okay. And he said that the some of the trainee pilots used to be taught to train their guns, hurricanes being flown, uh, shooting up basking shots <laughs> off oh the gosh. east coast. Oh, yeah. Wow. Same as the US Air Force used to do it with orcas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, crazy. Some of the when you look at the stats, like one of the uh, the reports, because um, like we were obviously talking about the the smaller vessels that were based around the Hebrides, and you've got you know the big, the more well known names like Gavin Maxwell and Tex Geddes and these these characters. Um, uh, but one thing that I don't think is as well known is is the Norwegians and how many they took. Now, one of the uh, apparently in the um, the fishing records 1960 was 4,266 sharks they took. So if you mention that to someone now, you know, in the context of sharks abundance these days, it's, you know, uh, a horrific figure uh, to think that there was that many sharks by the Norwegian fleet alone, um, which was the off season for the whaling fleet in Norway, which they would obviously be whaling over the winter there and then come around to the Hebrides. And I think based in Loch Boysdale, I think. On, um, yeah, I mean, uh, around they, that time. Um, yeah, they came over in, in significant numbers. They also brought factory ships with them so that they didn't have to go home. I mean, that was the, the great mistake that the Maxwells of this world made. With, and, and Watkins recognized it early on, was having a fixed factory. Yeah. To have a factory ship, you had to follow the sharks. I mean, it just became burdensome to have to catch a load of sharks and then head all the way back to Soy, for example, in Maxwell's case. Yeah. Go in over a bar that was only, you know, passable at half tide and could be stuck in there till the next high tide. And then you go back out and try and find the shoal again. So, you know, the Norwegians typically, because they had so much experience with whaling and also shark hunting, you know, had got it down to a fine art. Mm. Um, and there's a, a couple of things that always struck me as really, really odd. One was, well, two things. One, th one thing to think about is this is if the Norwegians hadn't either hunted out the sharks on the Norwegian coast or the sharks hadn't moved from the Norwegian coast, would they have come all the way to the west of Scotland and west of Ireland? Yeah, interesting. Otherwise. And that was the whole fleet, by the way. It wasn't as if they just were an offshoot that couldn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were even active down off Waterford. We used to see occasionally in the 80s, um, um, one or two of their boats were in um, Newlyn. Okay, right. So they were very active and they were willing to travel great distances because the the rewards were there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, basically they had either <laughs> destroyed their own uh, living up off the Norwegian coast or, you know, they, they were you know, having to move on because the sharks were no longer there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> weird reports of sharks around Iceland and things. That happened just a few years ago, but it also happened about 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I, th I think that with the, the Norwegians, um, it was a quota swap, wasn't it? It was we were allowed to go and catch herring in the Norwegian sector, and they were allowed to come around here and fish for sharks. But you, there, there were two things. One, post World War Two, there was no agreement. They were they were here illegally. They were fishing inside our um, our territorial waters, and they shouldn't have been. And the, you know, Fitzgerald O'Connor particularly took them on over that. Mm. constructed a big campaign that was in the daily express and you know they would send out fisheries gunboats but critically the norwegians by then had vhf radios second they saw one all the gear was drawn in you know yeah and they rubbing the decks and just looking national <laughs> um, 
Uh, it's, it's extraordinary stuff. And then they moved out outside the Hebrides and they, they uh, hunted out on the west of the Hebrides, outside our waters, and then they moved down to Ireland. But, you know, by 48, probably, I mean, in thir 1935, there was a sudden massive increase in the number of sharks. And right through west of Scotland, Firth of Clyde, Irish Sea, um, questions being asked in Parliament, you know, what were the government going to do about the menace of these sharks destroying people's livelihoods by wrecking their nets and all yeah. this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that was what set Watkins off on the trail. Of, and he hunted before the war. During the war, he went off into a tank regiment and he left, yeah. left his boats uh, hunting herring, mm, which was mm. did very well out of it. Um, and then after that, you had Maxwell and Tex, of course, was Tex Geddes was working for Gavin Maxwell originally, Harpoon Gunner. Watkins as well had returned. But he'd moved over to a mobile factory. The amazing thing to me was none of those men who were wealthy and smart, well, certainly Maxwell and Watkins were wealthy, uh, yeah. didn't bother to go to Norway to see how it was really done. You could have learned so a thing or two. Very lucky. Yeah, well, maybe for the sharks, it was good that they didn't, I guess. Yeah, because they, you know, they were able to take a shark in 10 minutes and extract the liver and dump the carcass still alive straight over the side yeah it's industrial when you when you think about it and that and those terms you know and if you yeah. think about it biologically how long it takes for that shark to grow to that size and reproducing so things uh you know what we, know we were now. after all as we know now we they were they were attacking the the reproductive stock yeah well that's right yeah. Other, and look at the look at the way the numbers were skewed i mean you know it was anywhere between um, eight females and 20 females to one male that were caught. The oh, females wow. were bigger, so obviously more attractive. You know, if you've got three sharks at the surface and two of them are small and one's a big one, which is, which is the one you're going to go for? So, you know, there was a, a strong logic in what they did and, and a lot of things that we didn't understand at the time that we got a better handle on. Um, like this ratio, ratio of males and females that you see in a torus, for example. Mm, mm. Why was why was the shark fishery so, so skewed? It might be something as simple as that, that it was just that the biggest sharks were the females, and that was it. It's interesting to have that insight on it. Was that more recent in the hunting that they started actually taking data on like the size and the gender of the sharks, or was yes. that quite historic? Is there no real records no, post, a bit older than that? It was it was really post World War Two, um, and you know Maxwell was a detail man, so you know he would have he would have recorded things pretty rigorously. Watkins did too, and you might also, if you were a, a smart man, have asked yourself what happens if we kill only the females. Yeah, what's going to be left? <laughs> nobody nobody took any thought at that era during that era about the possibility of over exploitation of the stock. Yeah, they thought that, the, that this new massive influx was, you know, the new normal and it was inexhaustible, which is just not the case. You know, it's a natural resource. So there was a there were a lot of questions that, that came up from that. But fortunately, and I don't mean this unkindly, they weren't very good at it. So um, the uh, if the Malay fishing guys had got into it in a significant way and some of them took a stab at it, but found it dirty work. Uh, 
they would have soon been up there and just as capable as the Norwegians because they were very smart men. Yeah, I think they were more more interested in the other stuff they were catching. I guess maybe it was seen yeah. as a, a hassle and you had to have all these things and, you know, it wasn't just towing for herring and different things yeah. like that, which was maybe cleaner almost, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one of the major fishermen that took part had a very nicely varnished ring netter mm. and it touched all this varnish up, you know, because they're so abrasive on the skin. That's and right. He, yeah. he, he really, really didn't enjoy it. But think of these things. I mean, the, the, the availability of the Kongsberg cannon and, and proper basking shark harpoons, not the old handheld double barb type, but yeah. these pencil harpoons that actually went right the way through the shark and then a, a, a clip on the end flipped open and so it couldn't be pulled out. The Norwegian hunters could get a shark aboard via a lasso, chain lasso onto the tail. The, the derricks on the boat to lift them were mounted on massive, thick rubber blocks to take all of the shaking and struggling of the shark. They yeah. just pulled it up, slashed it open, liver was dropped aboard, and the carcass was dumped. Ten minutes. So if those same industrial practices had been across the board, the, the result might have been completely mm. different. Yeah. Yeah, we would have maybe been sitting here talking about the well, extinct stink shark rather than... Well, I mean, if you look at some of the west coast of America, Canada particularly, um, you know, Rivers Inlet and places like that where there used to be so many sharks that they said, said you know, in the usual cliche that you could walk across yeah. to the other side of the river on the backs of them. Now they're seen about one every three or four years. Um, yeah. But literally, you know, they were ramming them with um, sharpened stainless steel blades with fisheries cutters and all kinds of things. Um, and they were viewed as vermin. So the situation the shark finds itself now in Scotland with protection and with really active interest in ecotourism through operations such as your own, you know, is, is a, a massive step. Well, it's not it's not that long a time scale, I guess. And, you know, like the, the main hunting in the sort of 40s to, to 60s uh, yeah. till now is, you know, not not that long, a longer period. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, uh, as you said, you know, it, it could have came to a much different conclusion um, in the end, uh, given how industrial some of those operations were. Uh, and even obviously the late the late hunter of Howard and the Clyde, you know, didn't take too many. I think it was no, uh, uh, quite small in in the grand scheme of things. Um, so really, I mean, it's only it's been now what sixty odd years, I guess, since there's been a a really determined effort um, around here, which hopefully has helped them recover a little bit. Because we, we do want to end on positivity <laughs> absolutely well i mean the other thing too is that now substitutes have been found for for exactly. liberal i mean if it's still available in suntan lotions and hemorrhoid creams and all sorts of things but it came comes mainly from portuguese dogfish um although it's still valuable in high altitude aircraft oil because it had, yeah we actually North had someone uh, on board, I think, that works for NASA, yeah. and I think they were yeah. talking about it because they still need to use it in some of the instruments that go up That's into correct. space, yeah. uh, and they were talking about the process they have to go yeah. through to use this oil, and it is minute quantities, you know, it would be, if it was a milliliter, it would be, that would be a lot kind of thing. Um, just tiny little things for these dials or gauges, and I think, like you said, it was to do with how pure that, that oil is, and they, and they haven't been able to find a substitute. Um, for it 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. It has an incredibly low freezing point, which is that the main value there, which may be linked to the incredible depths the shark can dive to mm -hmm. and use its liver as a hydrostatic organ. Yeah. That's probably why that has has, has uh, developed. And I mean, it was used in things like the, the great Comet 4 airliner. Well, all yeah, the hydraulics right. rather than basket shark oil. <laughs> If you've spent as long as I have rummaging around into this, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing the stuff that turns out. You've got an amazing fact list. You could, uh, well, you know, I mean, it was fabulous fun working on it. And, and honestly, I, I, I look back now to and, and enjoyed it immensely. You know, the people we met, the, the wonderful things that we, that we saw, and I'm so proud of uh you know the developments that have taken place in scotland in protecting it you know scotland has a unique place uh in in the story of the basking shark equally ireland does and i and again i pay tribute to the guys over there who who have a lot of you know put a lot of effort in, in these recent years and there's some of the new technologies that are being used which are bringing us new and, and amazing stories every year it's quite remarkable yeah, I've talked to we've talked to a few uh, researchers recently, and the things that we've been involved with, just even just in the last decade, um, from because this was our tenth year last year, uh, it's amazing just in that ten year span how much has been learned, and you know it, it's an exponential curve how much has been, you know, with all these modern um, DNA uh, analysis and you know camera tags and satellite tags, uh, the amount of knowledge that's come about from the last few or 10 years is, is unbelievable. Well, it was a long, laborious process to get here, but... Uh, well, that's right. You, I guess you did all the hard yards and your however oh, many, however, tens of thousands of kilometers of uh, surveys. And now, you know, we attach a little satellite tag and, you know, you get an email uh, showing you where the yeah. track is rather than having yeah. to follow it for weeks on end me, if you told me as a kid that that would happen one day i would never have believed it that's right yeah. <laughs> I, I must say that that uh, it was fantastic fun and what a privilege to sail around the hebrides for years and years it was just wonderful They've, my wife and i have sailed a lot we've done you know many ocean miles living on board our boat and everywhere we went we said is, is it as nice here as the Hebrides? There wasn't <laughs> one place, even Newfoundland and other fabulous places that we found that we thought was as good as Scotland. And that's one, maybe one of the reasons why we're back here. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Oh. You know, because effectively, with, with the time we were spending on the boat with guests, was equally ecotourism, if you like. Yeah. What's the difference in the reaction of the guests on board to seeing a basking shark compared with a whale? Oh. it is tricky because our trips are based on going to see sharks so it's not like it's a general wildlife trip and you know you might see one or the other so you can gauge the uh, mm. uh the reaction um uh, but so generally when people are, are geared up to see the sharks when they come here but they're always uh, well nine times out of ten they're absolutely stoked to see it we have had a few random occurrences because uh, there is a there's a trip advisor a review that says uh, we saw so many sharks. I got bored. Once you've seen one shark, you've seen them all, which is quite entertaining. Let's uh, say more about the person who wrote it than the sharks. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I think we got lots of actually tour bookings from that review, so I was kind of helpful in the end. So it's quite an interesting one. Um, mm. 
but yeah, people always, you know, love it. You know, they're uh, kind of blown away by that. And we try and kind of get over how difficult it is to actually find them, you know, in a certain place at a certain time and what it takes for them to be at the surface at that certain Well, you've got moment. some really reliable spots. And, and that's that's the best part about it. You know, Gunner Sound, for example. I'm always crewing, so I'm at the back with the guests when they're watching things usually. <laughs> um, so I get the lucky spot. But uh, it's interesting because you get people who travel from all over the world specifically to see Baskin sharks, and they're kind of the same people who will go and tick off different species of sharks in different places, and they are might not even look up if they see a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like bird watchers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've got their one thing they want to see. Yeah, that's um, right. And um, mostly underwater photographers, but I think we'd had, you must be familiar yourself with John Cohen Aquarius. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and interesting, maybe for you, is that uh, I first saw John Coe and probably Aquarius as a youngster uh, in 1992. And John Coe was a full-grown adult then. Amazing. Oh, wow. So did you, how many of the pod did you see at that time? Because obviously we've, uh, I think they said there was up to about 20 of them around about, you know, I think the most kind of the time, most, but most i ever saw was 12. incredible oh, wow yeah um it's but so you know, i remember seeing john co and and one other which as i say i i don't remember enough i actually got a photograph of it on a hideous day and we were we were coming back across the minch in terrible weather and um, stormy days they, just attracts worker you feel it in yeah. the air <laughs> <laughs> but as i say it was absolutely uh you know a full-grown dominant bull then yeah he is amazing huge. thing <laughs> what what date did you say that was that was 1992 yeah right because they think they say he's about they think he's about 50 or 60. i think there's oh, records yeah, yeah. of him the original, from the 70s that would be that would tie in with it yeah i've actually got a photograph from then uh it was a horrible day and then it wasn't the greatest photo but it was the first time i'd ever seen orcas so i was pretty pleased yeah yeah it's an amazing yeah. thing to see um I've been quite lucky. I've seen them every year I've been here now. Mm. And I remember, I think the first time I was just in tears. Uh, <laughs> seeing, it was the first time I'd seen an orca as well. And I just remember one of our guests was sat at the back of the boat eating their pat lunch, asking when we were going to look for the sharks. And <laughs> yeah, <I know> <laughs> it's one of those moments where you're like, my God. It's so um, funny. <laughs> we always found that people were, were far more awestruck with sharks. Whereas yeah. always laughed when they saw whales and dolphins. And, you know, there are great spiritual moments with it, really. It's being in company with something so colossal and so awe inspiring. I absolutely, I never lost the enthusiasm for it. You know, I'd, I'd be jumping up and down tomorrow if I was out there and saw one. <laughs> yeah, it really gets your heart going when you see one of those big fins on the surface. That's for oh, sure. Yeah. And what, what's the biggest shark you've ever seen? Oh. Yeah, I think we don't Some we don't get that ones. many big ones. Um, but we uh, the biggest has probably been about nine, I would say. But it's very seldom we've had them that big. Kind of, mm. kind of three to six would be kind of the average size class, and yeah. bigger ones kind of six to seven, and an occasional eight. But um, which is in, in some ways, if there is uh, the bulk of them are the smaller ones, it, it does give you a little bit more hope that you know they. There has oh, been yeah. quite a lot of breeding, and, and they're, they're the ones that are growing up. So, mm. sure. I mean, we. I remember once we were out by the Edderstone Light, and it was a flat, calm day, absolutely baking. And uh, 
we saw one very small shark and we thought it was a blue shark because we used to see them out there regularly. Mm. And then over the next couple of minutes, we saw five sharks and they were all tiddlers mm-hmm. and all very, very tippy and flopping. And yeah, uh, they seem quite they're... uncoordinated. Yeah, they <laughs> are. Yeah. They're, and and, and we'd sure we arrived just after a birth that that would seem likely because they were so hopeless in the water you know they were <laughs> and it would have had a little nose i guess as well yeah it wasn't until the third one that we actually got to see the nose and realized that we were looking at baby basking sharks wow it's quite spectacular well we, we saw one shark that we we reckoned was over 10 meters down in uh Cornwall, oh yeah land's end and it was just on another scale mm. colossal it wasn't just the length it was the girth you know the sheer bulk of the mm. body and the dorsal fin was just trailing in the water beside it. You know, you see ones which are bending over. Yeah. This one had completely folded <laughs> into the water alongside it. And it, I, I've got some photos of it. It was a, a very rough day again. Typical. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a theme in this. Well, yeah. Well, we'll again, as we've said many times in this conversation, uh, what can you say? And the weather's always the final arbiter. That's it. <laughs> So good well, weather for you this year, guys. Hope you have a a really successful season. And well, um, fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for talking to us. It's been a while since we've caught up, and it's been really mm. good to uh, to go through some of your research and uh, talk about that, and and also all the the hunting that's gone in, and obviously come through to kind of more positive things for MPAs and things in the future. So we'd obviously yeah. recommend everyone uh, get a copy of your book, Sea Monsters yeah. Tale, uh, and. The best place to get that is just online, Amazon, or is there yes, a better place? There's or... National History Book Society. You can get one from me. There's there's shops around here that keep it. Uh, but if you're further afield, Amazon, of course. Um, but yeah, most good bookstores you can you can order it, and it's also available now uh, on Kindle. Ah, anybody so who because anybody who wants to see it and just take it on a it's it's now available. Brilliant. Oh, well, you'll be well worth reading that. It's, uh, it's a really good, uh, a really good resource of all things Baskin Shark. So, well, well thanks very much, Colin. Great to talk to you. And we'll, uh, we'll be in thanks. touch in due course. Yeah, thanks very much. You both thank too. You. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for yeah. your time. Good luck. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks, one.